I want to read one of the passages that we call the nativity passages, the passages, scriptural passages of Christmas. Uh, there's several that we could read thoughtfully today, but I want to read Matthew, the first chapter, in verses 18 through 25. These are eight incredibly famous verses, and I want to talk a little bit today about my journey with this story. And I'm not trying to impose my journey on you, but I think my journey is very similar to a lot of your journeys with the story of Christmas. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25, look at it, you'll recognize it. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, he planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, surprise. Isn't that amazing? We get to the part of the story where Joseph realizes the incredible role in human history, creative history that he's going to play. Up to that moment, put yourself in Joseph's frame. This was a broken-hearted young man who knew he had been cheated on. What else is it? Think about it. Before you get to the beautiful part of the story, Joseph is engaged to the love of his life, and he finds out she's pregnant. And he knows that it's not his. Put yourself in his spot. Some of you have been in his spot. It's one of the most painful, it's one of the most painful experiences that a human can experience. That's where Joseph is, and he knows for a fact that's exactly what has happened to him. Can you sympathize? And yet the reality is not only was this not the worst thing that had ever happened to him, it was exactly the opposite. It was the best thing that ever happened to him. A word to the wise, for all of us, before you fully, affirmatively, and with a closed mind, settle on your perspective of what you're going through right now. Live with the possibility that this horrible set of circumstances actually may, in a grand cosmic sense, may not be the worst thing that you've ever gone through. And you may even, as history has proven to you many times, you may even look back at time, sometime later, and realize, a tale of two cities, that it was the best of times and worst of times. And as a wise friend of mine said, you know you're going to feel better one day, why not Go ahead now. And stories like this remind us of that, don't they? Surprise, Joseph. Not only is this not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take this girl who's cheated on you as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for not only is this pregnancy not destroying your life, 
It's going to save your life. Oh, my. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive, Isaiah 7, 14, bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife and had no marital relations with her until she had born a son and he named him Jesus. Joseph was invited to reinterpret the story. Joseph was invited in real time to reshape the narrative as he supposed it. And interestingly, as it is with almost all of Scripture, the last several years of my life has led me with Joseph to look at the exact same pregnancy the exact same birth, the exact same players, and reinterpret what that narrative means to me. Actually, it's not strange to me that the root of what I would call my spiritual journey, and I'm really reticent to use that word spiritual because I think, for me, the word spiritual has become synonymous with human. My, if, if I say my human journey, that is my spiritual journey because I, I don't think that I'm a human having a spiritual experience. I think my human experience is spiritual. And I, I think we get too dualistic and bifurcated in our thinking and we separate things that don't need separated. I, I don't think my spirit is contained by a fleshly body. I think my spiritual reality permeates my fleshly body and my flesh is a part of my spirituality. That's a revelation for me. Now, why wouldn't that be true? Because... Our religion is an incarnational one, which means God was enfleshed, and yet in so many ways we spend so much time denying, abrogating our flesh and pushing it down. And there are reasons for that, but I won't get into all of that. So when I say spiritual, I mean human. When I say human, I mean spiritual. So let me just say my spiritual journey. Well, there are other things I could call that. My, uh, my journey, to use Christian language, my journey of salvation, my... Uh, new birth. It's not strange to me that the root of what I would call Jesus' language, my conversion, be converted, Jesus said. My transformation, um, go a little bit Eastern, but I think Jesus was really Eastern. My path of enlightenment, and in no way do I consider myself enlightened, as the great Hindu sage said, he who knows doesn't say, he who says doesn't know. And when you think you're enlightened, it's a good proof positive that you're not. <laughs> but my path of enlightenment, toward enlightenment, whatever you call those things, at the root of my human experience are two stories. And it's not strange to me that if they are at the root of my journey, that these two stories are also the two inceptive or seminal or primal beginning stories of the religion that I've been reared within, the Judeo-Christian faith. Um, the Judeo-Christian faith is my ocean. If I'm a fish, it's my ocean. It's my environment. It's my habitat. It's what's indigenous to me. Uh, I, I quote often Phillips Brooks, the great Episcopal 
priest in the late 19th century, he was asked why he was a Christian, and after much pensive thought and study, as his interlocutor awaited on the wise answer coming from Brooks, Brooks simply looked back and retorted with great wisdom, why am I a Christian? I think it has something to do with a great aunt of mine who lived in New Jersey. In other words, we have a faith and a narrative that's indigenous to us. We're indigenous to it. It's, it is my lingua franca. As a friend of mine said to me this week, it's my mother tongue. Christianity is my mother tongue. Increasingly, Christianity has led me to become multilingual. But I still carry as my lingua franca, our primary language, the Christian language. And it's the primary language or the mother tongue through which I do my spirituality. And within that lingua franca, that lexicon of stories, there are two stories that have totally reshaped, almost as cataclysmically as the story was reshaped for Joseph. The first story is the creation story, Genesis 1 through 3 serves as the lead story of the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. And if you've been around here for the past year, you know that that Genesis 1 through 3 narrative has blown up in my heart and soul till it's almost the only thing I can talk about. The whole reality that for years I read that story as a story of sin and separation, only to ultimately read the story and see that that's not what it's saying at all. It's not a story of sin and separation. It's a story of shame and alienation. I'm not going to regurgitate that. Just listen to every other message I preached for the first eight months of this year. It's all in there. It's... So if you've been around here, I've talked a lot about the creation story. The other story is the nativity, the story of the advent, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Christ child, and the birth of Christ at Bethlehem. And that story serves the same purpose as the creation story does in the Old Testament. It serves that purpose as the New Testament. It's the capstone. It's the primal story that primes the whole conversation. My, my journey with these two stories has been a long and a winding one. Initially, just like most of you, if you were raised within a faith like this one, initially I was told these two stories. Before I could read and before I could write, I knew the creation story and I knew the nativity story. Before I could read and write and before I could even process with any even early form of inductive or deductive reasoning, when my mind was still vulnerable, the concrete of my life was still imprintable. In those days, not only was I told those stories in terms of the detail, but I also was given their meaning. I was told this is the story and this is what it means. Not just historically for those people, this is what it means for you. This is what it means for all of us. And not surprisingly, the interpretation the interpretations of both of those stories that I was given were the traditional, dualistically driven interpretations that have dominated, not exclusively, but have dominated the church's first 2,000 years. 
And I personally don't think that 2,000 years is an old church in the grand scheme of a 13 billion year old universe. I think, I think we're still in an infant church. These are just the beginning days. And sometimes we get chronologically narcissistic and everybody thinks they're the beginning and they're the end. I think we're just starting and the church is still an infant and there are good times ahead. I almost did a series here a while back. Uh, you remember the series on, um, what was the, the Left Behind series? Remember, how, remember all the books? Please don't nod your head like you read them, but you remember those books. <laughs> I almost did a series here a while back called Leaving Behind, Left Behind, but I thought that might be a little too strong, but Leaving Behind, Left Behind. Both interpretations of the creation story and the nativity story that I were given were very clear. The interpretations as I received them, maybe you didn't, but this was the way I received them. And that both stories said God was separate from us and we were separate from God. God was good and we were bad. God was perfect and we were problems. God was justifiably angry and we were justifiably scared. That was the interpretation of the stories in general that I was given as a small child. I was a very God-conscious child right out of the chute. I was the kid always asking questions, always concerned about these existential matters. And when you couple that kind of scrupulosity, sincerity, or it wasn't precocious. A lot of kids are that way, but I was very concerned about all that stuff. When you couple that kind of concern with that kind of answer, there's a reason by second grade I was biting my fingernails to the quick and suffering with a spastic colon. There's a reason. It, it's, it's not good for small children to live on what we used to call rapture alert. And every time you can't find your mom, you think that you've been left behind forever. And we laugh about it to keep from crying about it because it's damaging. And I would even go so far as to say it's abusive. That's strong. It's not intentional abuse, but I believe it was abusive. And I believe, thankfully, we're growing out of that because perfect love, when it is completed, cast out fear. And the message of Jesus, before he ever said, I love you, he said, please don't be afraid. The interpretations that I was given were very dualistic. God was there and we are here. And the entire deal between us and God is, is going to demand this sense of transaction to make things right. And my journey with these stories and their interpretations out of that, my journey has been marked by several stages. And this year before Advent got through, I didn't want to just rush through it without acknowledging the fact that like Joseph, these narratives, though they might not change in their details, they might change in their meaning. And if that was true of Jesus' surrogate father, then I certainly think it will be true of his brothers and sisters, which is all of us. The first stage of my life with those two stories I've already mentioned, so I won't tarry long on it, but I just want to walk through these stages. The first stage was the stage of imposition. And I don't mean imposition in, uh, a, pejor in a pejorative sense, but imposition in the sense that as a child I was taught that was a desk, this is wood, that's metal, that's a thumb, that's a finger, this is a jacket, that's five, that's three. Knowledge is imposed. Schematic development comes through the imposition of authority figures on children. That's just the way it works. 
You learn your alphabet that way. And this story was imposed upon me. Not only was the story imposed upon me, but the meaning was imposed upon me. The stories were told, their meanings were explained to me as a child, and I did what a child generally does. Though Some are born dissidents. I was not born a dissident. I wanted everybody to get along and love me, and so I always accepted the imposition. I accepted it. I was indoctrinated. And then I was shaped by the obvious implications of the meanings imposed on these stories by my ancestors. And that last statement that I just made is really the second stage of my journey with these stories. The first stage was I heard them and I accepted the details and the meaning as absolutely true because the person who told me was twice as big as I was and it's the same reason I believe that's four and that's three and that's two and that's one. Authority, the vulnerability of a child. That's called naivete, first naivete, received tradition. But then the second stage of the journey was the fact that I started being shaped by the implications of this dualistic way of telling these stories. My appetite, my palate, before the meaning started to shape me, before I could understand the language of the story, the appetite that was inside of me, the inherent palate, my taste buds, my appetite, palate, and taste buds did not call these stories and their meanings into me. Rob, I, I didn't choose these stories and I didn't choose what Sister Carter and my little class told me about them. My appetite had nothing to do with these stories. They were my mother's milk. I wasn't looking at a menu and neither were you. You didn't look at a menu and order something ideologically or theologically. They were your mother's milk. They were my only option. Therefore, I was sustained by them. The child does not choose the mother. The child does not choose the toxins that she puts in her body and then transforms through her milk into that child. The child doesn't have that choice. The child only is sustained. And I was sustained by them. And then accordingly, not only was I sustained by them, but then you do survival of the fittest, the lizard brain, you do what you do. Then you begin to develop an appetite and a palate and a taste for them. Why? Because they're the only thing you have and they're the only thing that sustains you. And so they become what we call an acquired taste. That's a funny idea, this idea of an acquired taste. As a baby, you can't help it. You acquire a taste for what you've been given. It's survival of the fittest. But I continually have friends of mine trying to get me to eat things, smoke things, and drink things that do not give me any sense of pleasure and they tell me it's an acquired taste and then I say well is it good for you no it's horrible for you why would I want to acquire a taste I already have a taste for tons of things horrible for me why would I want to acquire a taste for more things that are bad for me but you didn't choose you acquired a taste for those stories and they shaped you they were the reason a little second grade boy would run through the house 
traumatized by the absence of his mother. Because John knew the rapture had taken place and I was left behind, and the apocalypse and hell and the seven horsemen were not a pleasant idea for a seven-year-old child to sustain. The third stage. The third stage was I began to grow unwittingly ill. Between those gnawed fingernails and the spastic colon, I began to grow unwittingly ill or sick on this indigenous diet of mine. Because your body metabolizes, for better or worse, what you are ingesting. And I want to continually say I am glad in retrospect that I ingested a diet of the Judeo-Christian story. And I'll get to that in a moment. But the diet I ingested, while it was primarily living water, there were toxins. And I am thankful that the water hydrated and saved me. I regret that there were toxins that I have had to spend a good amount of time detoxing from. But there's not a human in the world in whatever religion that doesn't experience that reality. And already, somewhere between my IRA and 401k, I have a counseling fund for my children in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> because nobody escapes, do we? Are there any perfect parents, any perfect religious system? So there's no shame in this. It's just a reality. So that third stage is I begin to grow unwittingly ill or sick on that indigenous diet. My spiritual body was surviving on this menu, these offerings, this spiritual fare that I was being given, and I was not thriving. And, and notice something, I said unwittingly ill. Listen, I was growing as a child unwittingly ill. In other words, I wasn't aware of the unhealth. I wasn't aware of the growing sickness. I didn't think it was weird to run through the house and call the neighbor trying to find your mom because you believed you'd been left behind. I didn't think that was weird. That was normal because it was the only thing I knew. The child who suffers tremendous physical, psychological, God perished the thought even sexual abuse. It is not strange that that child will begin to bifurcate its soul and create alternative personalities and split itself off so that it might have at least a safe portion of itself. And for that child to carry that pattern, that survival mechanism into its adult life, this is no sin. My God, the things that we've called sin, the things that we've added shame to people's life for. Every time I sit in a 12-step meeting and I watch that newbie break down and cry with tears, just gushing and broken, and I look at other semi-newbies wondering why this kind of emotion, and I realize I know what she's facing. She's facing at this moment the recognition, John, that the best friend she's ever had, she may need to live the rest of her life without. But the church just looks at that bottle of alcohol and says it's a sin. Jesus says, no, that, that, that's not the point. The point is, before life offered her viable mechanisms by which to live with, as a little girl, necessity was the mother of invention, and she developed addictive patterns that so damaged her body that all these years later, 
she's sitting in a room because she's spiritually aware enough that she has to move from these poor ways of being to a better way of being, but she's grieving. And it's not just her frontal lobe grieving, she is grieving because the only mitigated, limited amount of safety and peace she's ever had was through this object. And somehow she's believing there's an alternative that she hasn't learned quite fully yet, and it's scary. Unwittingly ill means that we develop patterns. As children, we want to be loved, we want to be connected, we want relationships, we want to be secure in this world. And none of us are born in perfect environments, religiously or familially, so our little bodies and minds unconsciously begin to develop ways of acquiring relationships, connections, security, whether that's through the splitting of personality or developed addictions. We begin to get unhealthy. And the warped contours of our environment, we codependently bend ourselves in equal and opposite fits and strains of unhealth to simply make it work. I was not aware that I was surviving, not thriving, because the only way of living I knew was this, and it wasn't about surviving or thriving, it was about living. It's all I knew. I thought everybody lived. Didn't you? You thought everybody lived just like you lived. This was the only life I could consciously remember. Hey, have you ever been sick or tired or physically unhealthy so long that it became normalized for you and you actually forgot what wellness feels like? You ever been there? Have you ever finally come to a space, a relieving space, where you finally aren't tired anymore and you realize, I've been tired for 17 years and I didn't know it. Have you ever got so used to being sick that when you finally began eating right and exercising right and you finally got your health back, there's a sadness that comes over you. You almost grieve. You're like, I, I lived in that so long I didn't even know it. That's what I mean by unwitting illness. So first stage is imposition. Second stage is shaping. Third stage is illness. The fourth stage of my journey with these stories is the illness and the unhealth and the, the lack of spiritual, what you would, in biological terms, you'd call it homeostasis when the body's really functioning all of its systems right. The lack of homeostasis, the lack of health, in spite of the fact, again, that it was unconscious or beneath my awareness, my illness began to produce very real negative consequences in my life. And it all comes back to the way I heard the story, not the way I was told the story and what the story meant. And so you finally reach this stage where that unconscious illness begins to create really negative consequences internally and externally. It starts to really, really muck up your relationships with yourself, God, and others. And, and so that fourth stage, you begin to have in your life these very real negative consequences internally through self-perception. And, and, and I can tell you, for me, I, I don't know where you were, but for most human beings, 
That's why the Genesis story is brilliant. That story of the fall where we don't believe we're the beloved, where we listen to voices, the, the serpentine voices that tell us that we're not good enough and we're not sufficient and, and all of those things. The negative consequences internally, your, your self-perception, your self-relationship. Somebody told me recently that I needed to be a better friend to myself. Well, that... That goes back to one of the concentric circles way deep inside, back when I was eight or nine, because you're not a calendar that tears off the pages and throws them away. Here in a couple of months, when I turn 48, I'm still 47, 46, 45, 44. The xylem of my life doesn't have a bunch of dead rings inside of it, but every year I've lived like that tree still has life flowing through it. And you better tend, Jesus said, to that four-year-old and that eight-year-old and that 12-year-old. You ever act like an eight-year-old? You ever get in a fight with your spouse and go back to 12 years old? It's because it's still alive in you. That's why Jesus said, except you become as a child. What child? Your child. Continually reparenting, healing. That's why there are some things that you do that just seem absolutely at a subconscious level impossible to resist. It's the gravitational pull of the 47 years that preceded the 48th one. And the 48th's not going to trump the previous 47, but it dang sure better tend to those 47 carefully and lovingly in a reparenting, re-loving way. So internally, the consequences of those ideas begin to create such unhealth that internally your self-perception, your self-relationship gets so damaged. And then externally, your vision of God. I mean, if somebody says the word God, you flinch. The ground of being, you don't know how to pray. Religiously, you know you're supposed to read a book that you don't even understand, so you don't ever read it, and then you feel bad about not reading it. And then you know if you'd read it more, you wouldn't feel bad. And you even get ashamed that you're not correcting your shame properly. And you get lost in this vortex, an abyss. It's not the ground of being. It's an abyss of shame. And then, then you really get clear because it starts, it moves beyond the esoteric of impacting your internal thoughts about yourself and God. And then it starts bleeding over into the areas of other people's lives and other people healthy or unhealthy, have enough boundaries in their life, they start looking at you saying no. And you start getting left. You start getting left. Because people just can't do it anymore. They don't know what they can't do, but they can't do it anymore. And they leave you in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it's abject and it's extreme. Sometimes it's just emotionally. But distance is created because when Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, the reality is you do. You do. And if you love yourself poorly, you love them poorly. We do love our neighbors as ourselves. The supposition, the presupposition of Jesus was that you would love yourself well. Well, how do I love myself well? Jesus said, oh, that's easy. Love yourself the way God loves you. Agree with the sacred voice that calls you good. Agree with the sacred voice that calls you beloved. This is the journey of salvation. Not becoming something different, but agreeing with what has always been. Accepting what has always been. The consequences are the fourth stage. The fifth stage 
of this religious journey with ideas and thoughts, stories. The fifth stage is the negative consequences, the negative losses, the negative pain becomes severe enough that you begin to seek remedy. Now, this one is a mind-numbing one. It gets bad enough that you start seeking remedy. I don't know why I'm incurring these losses. I don't know why I'm suffering. I don't know why I cannot relieve myself of this pain. I don't know why, but it's real, and I got to get help. And interestingly, ironically, of course, you first seek help and healing from the very resources, ironically, that have caused you to become sick. Can I say that again? In a religious familial setting, because we weren't being hated. Sometimes that unhealthy family system of yours was loving you as well as they could. Poorly, but as well as they could. That religious system. I don't remember. I don't look back unfondly and remember a bunch of hypocrites who were trying to be wrong. I remember a bunch of people doing the same thing that I'm doing today, and that is sincerely doing my best with the information I have. And so you were in environments that promised love and really intended love and they felt enough like love that you couldn't really see clearly that it wasn't healthy love. Anybody ever been in an unhealthy loving relationship? I want to tell you, when somebody's using you like a life jacket, it feels romantic, passionate, and great. Clutching and grabbing can feel pretty good in the right circumstances. <laughs> but if it mutually drowns you and them, it's not healthy, is it? And so, you seek remedy for these negative things that are happening. And I ran right back to the altar where I first learned those things. I thought to myself, if, if this is my diet, I need to eat more of it. If this is the vitamin, I need to take more of it. And you begin to seek help and healing from the very resources, ironically, that caused you to become sick. And then the sixth stage is on the same diet, no matter how hard you try, you get sicker. And that's a really devastating thing because you've never tried harder in your life to be loved. You've never tried harder to read the Bible. You've never tried harder to pray to this God. And on the same diet, doing more of it, you get sicker, and it doesn't work, and you begin heading toward terminal illness, and when that happens, it's a horrible stage, and a lot of you have been through it, but thank God it's a part of the spiritual journey. It's what Rohr calls falling upward or falling forward. The same diet gets you sicker, so what do you do? You give up on the diet. That's the stage of deconstruction. That's where people lose their faith. That's where people, we used to call it backsliding. Little did I know, a lot of people's backsliding was about the healthiest thing they had done in their spirituality in a long time. But it doesn't feel like that, does it? But what else do you do when you've tried and tried and tried and you're gorging yourself on the diet and you're getting sicker? you finally realize that this isn't working and deconstruction sets in. Richard Rohr calls that the collapse of the castle. You've built up this big castle and the whole thing begins to implode. And then 
the upward and forward movement of falling begins to happen. And you begin to, in retrospect, you look back at this stage and you realize, ah, that's what Jesus was saying when he said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. The way up is, and exalted is abased, and the first or last, it, it's the kingdom of opposites, honestly. I remember the first time I was sitting in my granddad's big sign truck. He was a signman there in northeast Arkansas, and I was in that big 20-foot truck, and he had a trailer on the back of it. I'd never driven anything with a hinge, and I was driving. We got to the Dairy Queen where we were going to work on the sign, and my granddad, knowing what was going to happen, he said, stand back the trailer in right there. And so I started back in the trailer in, and that crazy trailer went the opposite direction. Isn't that an awful feeling? Never forget what my granddad said. When I finally had jackknifed that thing four or five times trying to back it up, my granddad said, here's what you're going to have to do. Get it straight. Look where you want it to go. Feel your hand on the wheel. Look in the mirror and do the exact opposite with your hand of what you feel. And sometimes that's that's why another book of Richard Rohr's, Steve, that you gave me, was Breathing Underwater. This is all Richard, Breathing Underwater. Sometimes you have to do the exact opposite. Sometimes, Joseph, you have to look at the pregnancy exactly opposite. Not only is this not the devil in her, it's God in her. Sometimes the conversion is so radical that Jesus got it right. He said, you'll feel like you're born again. Sometimes spiritual conversion is so strong, it's, it's new birth, it's conversion, it's transformation. It's, you want to call it enlightenment, you know you're not supposed to call it enlightenment, but it's profound. And, and practically, you have to take the hand of your life and move it in the exact opposite direction of what you've been trained. But I promise you, as you begin to do it, you will find a primal memory because underneath the training, there is a memory, C.S. Lewis said, not of years and decades, but of century and millennia. It's called the image of God in you. And you might even be able to remember it before kindergarten, back when you were in three and four and could dance naked and not care. The seventh stage is your bankruptcy, desperation, collapse of the castle, collapse of faith. After you have rejected the stories and says it doesn't work and you think you're bereft of faith, some do this, some don't. I did. You begin seeking alternative remedies, alternative diets, alternative stories even alternative religions. I left the Christian church and I went to the 12-step world because I could not let go of my sense of spirituality, but I felt like Christianity had let go of me and quit working. And so I went to the 12-step world looking for an alternative remedy. You, you, you do what every bankrupt Christian does, you either go to the 12-step world, start reading about Buddhism, read Richard Gere's memoir, something like that. <laughs> and I want to tell you about that world. Some of those new languages actually began to be healing for me.
but not only were they directly healing to me. Thomas Merton experienced that. Read it in Seven Story Mountain. Thomas, the great, the great Catholic priest. Thomas Merton had come to the end of his faith in Christianity. It simply wasn't working. And he went all the way across the world and with Tibetan Buddhist monks, he found a reinvigorated faith. And about the time he was ready to convert and become a Tibetan Buddhist monk, thankfully, the Buddhist Abba who led the monastery set him down and said, Thomas, go home. You're a Christian and you can do this there. Thomas said, I wanted to convert. But the old monk said, no, 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 go home. And he came home with a reinvigorated faith. And that's the irony of ironies for me is that beyond the direct effect of some of the healing that I receive from other languages and other spiritualities, they indirectly, surprisingly pointed me back home. I'll be doggone. They pointed me back home to my birthplace, my homeland, my mother tongue. And the eighth stage ensued for me with enough healing and enough distance from the pain and the abuse of foul interpretations or unwise, unmature interpretations, I was whole enough that I began to read my native stories with a clean, no, not a clean slate, a cleaner slate. And I began reading the native stories with a cleaner slate because pain and bankruptcy and the collapsing of the castle have a refreshing effect of removing old lenses and filters. And you know what? Some of you have proven it. A couple of bankruptcies can lead to making a lot of money. A couple of divorces sometimes can lead to a good marriage because you finally get to the end of yourself. You finally realize that the worst thing in the world has happened. You've lost everything financially and somehow unrestrained by that thing that John called tormenting fear, you actually get free and can get creative. So when Jesus said, if you'll lose your life, really lose it and let go of it, you might find it. It's why Augustine said, even the divine can't give to clenched fist. But pain and bankruptcy have a way of unclenching your religious fist. And the old lenses and filters are removed. And with eyes to see with, Jesus said, having eyes to see, they don't see. With eyes to see with, you begin to understand why the wise man said that the eyes are the window of the soul. When the soul wants to look out, it looks out through the eyes. And unrestrained by immature filters, dualistic ways of thinking, the, the soul can finally look clearly past just generational orthodoxy being imposed upon you. You finally lose it all. And, and Rohr said, in the collapse of the castle, you want to you wanna just believe that you've died, but you stay there and you sift through. And it's not the mahogany and it's not the gold, but it's the stuff of home. It's the memories that you begin to sort through. And you don't rebuild a castle, you rebuild a humble cottage for you and God to live in because God never wanted to live in a castle in the first place. Just wanted to live in a humble home with you. And as you begin to read the stories with this fresh, bankrupt vision, 
you hear Jesus say what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, but I say unto you. And then finally, as you read those stories with fresh eyes, new meanings. I read the story for 44 years that we sinned and God separated. And then one day, I read the story and I saw that God didn't separate, but our shame alienated, alienated us from a God who refused to separate. And I ran around for a year thinking, am I reading this right? I showed it to everybody I could show it to, saying, find holes in this. And you have this crazy-making epiphany, Brian, of how did I read this 1,433 times and see this any differently than I'm seeing it now? Because that's the journey of spiritual transformation. And it doesn't generally come with immediate epiphanies. It generally comes with a slow, healing, grinding process. And these new meanings begin to create new practical implications, and you begin developing new patterns, new ways of being, new ways of living. And then after a little while, those new and better ways of living begin to create new and better results, and you begin to realize that life follows the pattern of be, do, have. And you used to think that it followed the pattern of do, have, and then be. But abundant life comes through a mind transformed by new and better thoughts, new and better ways of reading the story. And I'll close with this. The story of Advent and Christmas has shifted for me. The incarnation and enfleshment of God in Jesus is no longer the grand exception. It is the proclamation of the glorious rule that God has always been in flesh. Imago Dei, he created them in the image of God. Jesus then was called the second Adam. Emmanuel was not God has arrived. Emmanuel was God is with us and always has been. Jesus was not the first giving of the Christ gift. He was simply the visible human iteration of a consciousness and a reality that John's gospel said was with and in and simply was God before the worlds were created. And Advent and Christmas is not a declaration of duality, here or there, good and bad, crime and punishment, sin and separation, but it's a declaration that in Yahweh has become salvation. And salvation is simply growing into the awareness that we have always been safe. But oh, we didn't live that way. God has not been disguised or purposefully hidden in creation, but we have little by little been developing eyes, ears, hearts, minds, and souls that now have the capacity to see the reality that Teresa of Avila said, you will find God in yourself and yourself in God. And Mary, did you know that when you touched your little baby, you've touched the face of God and the face of your little baby and the two mysteries are woven into one in Christ. Why so long a process? To tell all the truth but tell it slant, Dickinson said. Too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise. The truth 
must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. We're getting it. And transformation and salvation is a long gestation and a new birth that comes through time. This is my journey with the stories of the Christian faith, with the stories of my mother tongue, my motherland. I am so glad I lost it because in losing it, I love again looking over into that manger and embracing the mystery that is the Christ child. The mystery that not only now reveals who God is, but reveals as much who I am and always have been. What a beautiful faith, this Christian faith. What a beautiful season, this Christian season. And I think a lot of you can identify with this journey. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. For the preciousness of our faith and the majesty of the incarnation and the beauty of Emmanuel, God with us. Help us all like Joseph. Help us all who have felt so close, even as Joseph did. For those of us who have been engaged to Mary, for those of us that have been engaged with the Judeo-Christian faith, lead us to look at this pregnant girl differently. Lead us with Joseph to look at that newborn baby differently. Not less than, but better than. For surely we have not exhausted the truth of the mystery that is in Christ. May our eyes continue to grow that the mystery might continue to unfold. And we will know that God has always been and always will be with us. May we now emotionally, spiritually be with the God who has been with us. And may it so be with ourselves and others that we are with, that we are with. Heal us lovingly. We pray in the name of that Christ child, in the name of Jesus. And God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. Amen.